Greetings and welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series. Podcast episodes are available on VHHA.com and on popular podcast hosting apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and many others. Episodes of the podcast also air each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, and 820 a.m. across Central Virginia. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. Again, that's PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. And today we're excited to be joined by Ryan Kress, a nurse at Carillion Clinic, who in her spare time is the reigning Miss Wheelchair Virginia, a nationally recognized disability advocate, an adaptive athlete, a model, and a member of the LGBTQ community. Today we're going to chat with Ryan about her life's journey, her work in healthcare, and her lived experience with a chronic degenerative genetic condition. And with that background, welcome to the program, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we appreciate you being with us. So let's start with your work at Carillion, which is how you came to our attention through some news coverage of your attempts to find a job as a trained nurse who uses a wheelchair before ultimately being hired by Carillion after about two years of of applying all over Mm -hmm. the place. So if you could just take us through that process and tell us about your current work and your, your role at Carillion now. Sure, absolutely. So I am currently working as a nurse on a mother-baby ward at Carillion. After about two years or so um, since becoming a wheelchair user, I've been trying my hardest to get back to the bedside. I have been working as a case manager, just trying to get used to, you know, living life on wheels. And I was on, I guess this was now job application number 18. I was just about to throw in the towel when I finally got a call back. Well, that's awesome. And so you mentioned uh, life on wheels. And so as I understand it, your path to nursing is inspired by personal experience as a hospital patient after being diagnosed as a teenager with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is a a genetic disorder that impacts your joints and mobility. So if you could tell us more about the condition and how it affects your Mm -hmm. body and then how it shaped your personal and professional arc. And, And you mentioned being in a wheelchair, I guess, is somewhat of a recent development. So just sort of explain that for us, if you would. So I was born with a genetic condition called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or EDS for short. It is a fairly rare disorder that affects my collagen, um, collagen being basically the glue that holds all of me together. Um, my collagen is too lax or too stretchy. So that leads to a plethora of super fun comorbidities. But the main ones that people will notice are that my joints are so loose, they dislocate very easily. From birth, I had a shoulder that would dislocate over 100 times a day, for example. Um, that eventually kind of progressed to affecting my skin. It's very stretchy, very soft, and doesn't heal very well, as well as organs. I've had several removed because they were too stretched out. Heart valves that are stretchy, that are monitored, those kind of things. And so it's not necessarily a progressive as in it's going to get worse as I age, but because of the constant joint dislocations and things like that, it's very degenerative to my joints. And over the years, my hips, knees, and ankles had gotten to the point where they no longer supported my body weight. So I went from walking with a cane in college to forearm crutches to then ultimately a wheelchair about two and a half years ago. And during all this, I was working as a staff nurse in the ER ambulatory until the wheelchair came to be. And I took a step away from this bedside to kind of get more acclimated to the chair, get used to kind of living life that way. And that's what brought me up at Carillion. And as I understand it, you said it is degenerative to some degree. You were a a dancer as a younger person and a teenager. So can you just sort of for the the benefit of those who are less familiar with this condition, and I count myself among that group, can you just sort of take us through the traditional sort of evolution of it? I mean, does does the Mm -hmm. onset typically come, you know, childhood, teenage years? How does it typically evolve Mm -hmm. in a person? 
So the thing with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is it uh, being so rare, there's not a ton of research on it. So it's very difficult to be diagnosed. There are very few physicians that are trained to diagnose. And because of that, there are 13 current subtypes of EDS. And with that, we've linked them to genes that we've synthesized, and they can be diagnosed directly from just blood genetic subtyping. But others, we haven't quite synthesized the gene yet in order to more easily diagnose. So that's why when people get diagnosed, it kind of depends on what treatment teams are around them and who sees them first. For me, it took until I was about 16, and it was a fluke. I went in with my sister, who was being evaluated by a geneticist for a completely different genetic anomaly, and the doc saw me standing kind of strangely and said, hey, do you mind if I take a look at you? And then the words, you know, have you ever heard of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome came to be. For many of us, some of the kind of common ways that it, it does become more progressive and more degenerative as we age. For me, I said, you know, it was in my lower legs and my hips, primarily because I was a dancer for years and years, all through middle school and high school. Growing up, that's what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to be a dancer. I wanted to be on Broadway. And it came until the doctors were like, you have this genetic condition and you will end up in a wheelchair by the time you were 20. I made it to 26, but you know, <laughs> it was still there. Some other common ways that it progresses, a lot of um, EDS patients will have feeding tubes because we'll develop gastroparesis where our stomach has actually become paralyzed or just too stretched out to function. So that's fairly common as well as having to get spinal fusions because it gets to the point where our spine and our actual vertebrae will slip and kind of come out of joint on top of one another, which can be quite dangerous. As we age, is this symptom um, new? Is this a flare? Or is this going to be the rest of my life is a fun game we play in the chronic illness community. Other than uh, the wheelchair with mm -hmm. mobility assistance, what are the other sort of common clinical strategies for managing the condition? There's a big thing that's called the spoon theory in the chronic illness community. And so a big part is and monitoring our chronic fatigue. We get tired very easily. If you think about it, you know, my joints are constantly making tiny, tiny little micro corrections to stay in the joint, to keep me aligned, to keep me where I'm supposed to be. Because I was born this way, I don't realize it until I'm out and about doing something, I get home and realize just how exhausting it is. Showering, generally have to rest after that. Anything like that can be just absolutely exhausting. So in the spoon theory, it's kind of a, a thing that in the morning, every person with a chronic illness is only given a set of, say, 10 spoons. Each spoon represents your energy allowance for the day. So say you chose to take a shower, that's five spoons for the day. Okay, well, you've only got five spoons left to work with, and you have to you know, fagging away to work a job, cook dinner, take care of your kids, do whatever it is that you do on a daily basis. So energy maintenance is a huge part of dealing with chronic illness. My wheelchair is a big part of that for me because I can stand and walk a few steps at a time, very short distances, and I do so in the hospital room. But for me, getting up and down the hallways is one I walk like a pregnant duck. So <laughs> it's not exactly very easy to get down the hallway. And so using my wheelchair helps me with my energy maintenance. It allows me to live my life much more independently and much more on my terms. Other ways to do so, fitness is a huge thing for EDS patients. The more muscle I can build up surrounding that joint, you know, my muscle is still stretchy. It still does, in fact, have collagen. However, the more mass I can put on surrounding my joints, the better I can help to stabilize and kind of help slow down that progressive joint degeneration. 
Well, I really appreciate that explanation, and it's enlightening for me to learn more about this syndrome and this condition. You mentioned fitness, and and that's a great segue to the next question. I will say that in preparation for this conversation, we checked you out on the gram, uh, where you you describe yourself as a sex-positive loudmouth, and you've posted workout pictures of of yourself in a shirt with a slogan that reads, not your inspiration porn, and and where you discuss everything from dating to the intersection of sexuality and intimacy and disability through your personal experience. You've sort of alluded to some of this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about the benefits and perhaps even the fear or uncertainty of sharing your authentic and unvarnished thoughts with the public and the reactions that you've received. Absolutely. So I originally started my Instagram as a diary of sorts. So being born with EDS until I was well into college and I started relying on a cane to help me get around and more things like that. If you took one look at me, you had no idea I was disabled at all unless I chose to tell you or if you saw me fall or something like that. So as my disability kind of became more progressive, became more prominent and became a bigger fixture in my life, I started thinking, you know, well, why don't I kind of put that out there to help not only myself deal with it, but also help people who have been very close to me, but don't really know what's going on with me in my Mm -hmm. medical life. So I started this Instagram and suddenly I am being flocked to by so many newly diagnosed EDS patients, new wheelchair users and chronic illness patients just because of the way I chose to share my story, which is, you know, very loud and out there and very (laughs) to the point. We share good days, bad days, everything in between. And because of my work in healthcare and just the way I am as a human, I tend to be a very open book. And so, you know, you can come on my page at any time and, you know, we might be talking about the day I had to, you know, figure out how to give a stool sample and what's all the fun things about that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just been kind of an interesting ride to share every not every little thing about my personal life but a very large chunk of my personal life as far as my disability goes and the things that people are afraid to talk to for example you know sexuality in the disability community is not something that's commonly talked Mm -hmm. about much at all so I started a series on that because I do have a background (laughs) and a degree in sex education so I teach you know some sex ed from a healthcare standpoint to a community of people who it's almost never even considered and never brought up in a conversation especially by healthcare professionals and so it has been a wild ride that's for sure <laughs> seeing this instagram and getting to show off a bit of you know how i maintain myself as a disabled woman mentally physically and all the above but i think the best part has been when i was diagnosed you know there was no social media yet it was not a big thing i couldn't just go online and find a new group of people with this disorder that I was just diagnosed with and had never heard of before. And so now I get to be that person that I needed when I was first diagnosed that can help these people through this diagnosis process, help you kind of adjust to this brand new world as a wheelchair user, if that's the case, and um, try to make things a little bit easier and be the person that I needed. Well, it's great to see you modeling that behavior and and really sort of uh, being a beacon or an example for others who are going through something similar. So appreciate uh, you sharing that perspective there. And we should note for people who want to see and hear more about your journey, they can follow you uh, on Instagram at chronically underscore R-Y. Ryan, you are the reigning Miss Virginia Wheelchair for 2020 and 2021. Tell me about what that title means, the organization that supports it, and what kind of activities you're involved in related to that position. Absolutely. So the Miss Wheelchair Virginia program is underneath the umbrella of the Miss Wheelchair America Foundation. We're a foundation that was founded in the early 70s by a doctor out of a rehab hospital in Ohio. It was basically, at the time, 
just a way to get these women who are graduating out of his rehab hospital kind of more involved in the community, learn a bit about disability advocacy, and get around to spreading the word about a community that they would have been very new to coming out of that rehab hospital. So for us, it is a advocacy-based program where disabled women can compete based on interview questions as, as well as public speaking abilities and advocacy platform development. Once we are crowned, you get to basically travel all over your home state advocating for whatever your chosen platform may be, as well as just disability advocacy throughout the state and telling your story. So I've held the title since November of 2019. Um, thank you, COVID. My state board elected to keep me on a second year. <laughs> and through that, I've gotten to travel and speak to crowds from all of three people to all of 3,000 people telling my story and speaking about my personal platform, which is involving more disabled bodies in healthcare and in healthcare careers as a whole. And it's been an incredible ride. Uh, this coming August, I will compete for the Crown of Miss Wheelchair America, in which I'll be able to do the same, but bring my advocacy platform and public speaking abilities to a more national audience. <laughs> so that's very exciting. <laughs> well, good luck in the upcoming competition. Thank you so much. And so now that we've tackled uh, some of the serious stuff, Ryan, I do have a few other questions for you to give our listeners a bit uh, more personal insight about you. The first, and this is an entirely imaginary premise, but in the hypothetical scenario that you could anticipate your final day on earth, what would your last meal be? Ooh, that is a good one. Um, definitely some old school southern mashed potatoes country fried steak, <laughs> and lima beans Okay. with, I think, a dessert of coconut cream pie. Yep. That sounds good. <laughs> with the with the sausage gravy on the side? Oh, for sure. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I am a Southern Belle. That is how we do. <laughs> <laughs> Next question for you, Ryan. What's one post-COVID thing you're most looking forward to being able to do? Ooh, get back to getting to play basketball again. I play wheelchair basketball down here on a team called Roanoke Stars. And I have, it's been over a year since we've had practice and I miss it terribly. <laughs> I actually have a friend who uh, is in a wheelchair basketball league. Uh, he's actually originally from Salem. So out that way, ah. uh, but he's in the Richmond area now and he's in, he's in a league. So ah, that's awesome. Interesting. And then the last question for you, Ryan, and this is one that we ask all of our guests on the patients come first podcast if you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book, one album, and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself occupied? Ooh. We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than okay. that, right. what are your okay. three entertainment survival kit picks? So book, absolutely my favorite book of all time is On the Road by Jack Kerouac. My copy is duct taped and annotated and falling to pieces, and that would be definitely coming with me. Okay. Movie, I would have to say Dead Poets Society. Captain, my captain. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. Do you hear me? Sit down. Sit down. This is your final warning, Anderson. Okay. Robin Williams, always a classic. I wanted to be an English teacher for years growing up, so that was a big, big literary theme for me. Mm -hmm. An album? Oh, that's. Mm, I would. I'm. I'm gonna be cheesy here and take that. I will take "Under the Table and Dreaming" by Dave Matthews Band.
because I am from Virginia, so I can claim him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I love his music. So, yep, I think those would be the ones. Yeah, there, there is something about uh, people, and I'm not a native Virginian, but I've been here for a while, uh, and I, I am old enough that I remember when Dave Matthews Band used to play local clubs in Richmond yes. for $3 a ticket, $5 a ticket, and, and so there is <laughs> there is a sense of ownership for people who are of a certain age who feel like Definitely. you know they saw them back when, uh, before they, <laughs> they became big time, so I, I certainly can relate to that. Exactly. <laughs> Well, listen, with that, I really appreciate you being with us. And that is going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so that you know when new episodes are available. And we want to once again thank our guest, Ryan Kress, a disability advocate and nurse at Carilion Clinic for joining us today. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me.